This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Good morning. Today's scripture is Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one either in front of you in the pews or underneath your seat in the chairs. Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Good morning. Let's, uh, Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. We come to you because of Jesus in his mighty name, because of his work. Lord, we honor you and exalt you and ask this morning as we open your word, would you come and meet with us? Would you speak to us? Would you shape us? Would you conform us to yourself? God, I ask for a spirit of revelation this morning as we hear and receive your word, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we would see you and know you and walk in your ways? God, would you draw us after yourself and would you give us strength by your spirit this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So before we jump in this morning, uh, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for almost three months now. And uh, this morning, what I want to do is slow down a little bit and use this morning's sermon in some ways like a transition. So I want to spend a significant amount of time recapping some of the places that we've been in the sermon and then talk about what we are going to be uh, looking at over the next several weeks. Um, and in just, just as a, a tip-off to you guys, we're going we're gonna to slow down through chapter 6 a little bit. Uh, so if you have one of those uh, packets that we gave out at the beginning or one of the cards with the outline on it, we're going we're gonna to ruin uh, that for you, uh, as I do regularly. Uh, and the reason is, uh, as, we, as we came to chapter 6, it's my heart to, we spent a lot of time through chapter 5 digging into some of those temptations and the sins that Jesus invites us to resist. And then we were going to fly over some of these means of grace that Jesus invites us to. And I thought we should give the same amount of energy to focusing in on and drilling down toward some of these beautiful uh, practices that Jesus puts in front of us and the reason why he gives them to us and how he invites us to participate in them. So we're going to slow down there a little bit and push our series into the new year uh, uh, just a little bit. So that's going to be our our outlook today. But what I want for this morning is to resituate us as where we are in the sermon, what's Jesus trying to accomplish, and then look at what he's doing in chapter six. So as the next several weeks unfold, we have a good starting place, a good bedrock to move from. So if you've got the notes, would you take a look at them? We're going to spend a minute reviewing uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as we've talked about, is Jesus's 
most composite picture of what it looks like for a believer to partner with God's grace in growing in virtue, growing in the graces of God, growing in the values of the kingdom. Uh, So the message of the Sermon on the Mount, it's really important for us to understand, is not opposed to the grace of God, right? Some people see the, the, the Uh, the commands or the invitations of the Sermon on the Mount and wonder how they play together with the message of the grace of God made known in Jesus Christ. They see them as some kind of law or some kind of standard that we, uh, is meant to indict us or, or, um, condemn us. And then we come and receive the free grace of Jesus. But that's actually not what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. What the Sermon on the Mount is, is this portrait of what Jesus values and an invitation for those that he has called to follow him, to partner with his grace and seeking to orient our lives around those things. We, we see this as pursuing a life that's built around obedience to the teachings of Jesus. It's uh, one that Jesus says is like building your foundations on steady and sturdy bedrock as opposed to sand. At the end of the sermon, he outlines this picture of those that hear and obey these words are like those who have drilled down into bedrock and built their house there, as opposed to those who would hear and not practice these things are like those who have built their house on shifting sands. And when seasons of trial or testing come and uh, expose what the bedrock actually is or what the foundation is built upon, those who have oriented their lives around the things that Jesus has defined as valuable and good and right, they are those who remain steadfast. And we've talked about again and again, that's why we're preaching this series at this moment. You know, we all in this room, uh, both in our world, our society, in our culture, in our church, we've experienced a lot of shaking, right, in the last couple years. We've, we've experienced the winds of pressure blow against us. We've seen some shifting around, and it's exposed foundations and faulty cracks in all these places in all of our lives. And we long to be a type of people who is ordered around building our lives on the bedrock of Jesus and his teachings. And so we're uh, laboring in that place again and again. Look at letter C. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins it with a statement about his value system, the value system of the kingdom of heaven. The eight Beatitudes, and you're probably familiar with these, blessed are the poor in spirit, those that mourn, the meek, those that are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and Jesus lays them out. They operate like invitations to both holding and embodying the things that are truly great in the eyes of God. These are invitations for us to order our lives around the things that God calls valuable. Another way to think about values is to talk about the ideas of satisfaction and fulfillment, or you could say like, what's the good life? Every single society in all of human history, every culture, every kingdom has a picture of what it believes will provide true and lasting satisfaction for people, right? What will make you whole? What will make you full? What will make you have a good life? 
Every culture, every society, every kingdom in all of history has these things. Jesus' kingdom is no different. Jesus' kingdom is built around things, values that are a composite picture of what it means to pursue and experience true happiness. Humans are hardwired to orient our lives around what we think will provide us the most true and lasting fulfillment. So whatever you picture in your mind as providing ultimate happiness, right? Whether that's money or comfort or some concept of freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, travel as much as you want, whatever the picture of your life is that you think is gonna provide you happiness. And I've said this again and again, you wanna excavate what you think that is? Go look at your Instagram feed. Scroll through it. That's what you probably believe is going to provide you happiness. Whatever the composite picture uh, is in that place is probably what you've oriented your life around to find happiness and fulfillment. And what is true about you at a fundamental level, it's true about all of us, is we are hardwired to have a picture of what is going to make us whole and then orient our lives around getting that. It is a part of how God's made us. So these eight beatitudes, letter E, are like a litmus test for our growth in grace and godliness. In many ways, these are the measure of our real and true impact in the kingdom of God, not necessarily the scope or the size of our impact in this world. Possessing these fruits and seeing them grow in us defines a life of love and spiritual maturity at the heart that is oriented around God's kingdom. So we desire to be individuals and a church family whose life is built upon this value system, right? As a church family, I don't want any other vision of success or version of success to cloud our eyes or our minds other than what Jesus lays out here. Every other version of success is, is able to be shaken and taken away in a minute, Right, So if success is how energetic it is around here or how good the coffee is or how bad the coffee is or whatever you want to put in there, if the vision of success is like some form of momentum or hype or energy or some kind of picture of what we imagine success is and these realities are not growing and being cultivated in us, we're actually not successful. Jesus reorients it and invites us to see, hey, what measures are you setting up for what you think is the good life, both individually and as a church? Each of these eight markers runs counter to the ways that the world defines success, growth, maturity, and greatness. I mean, just think about this. When you read through the Beatitudes, What kingdom in all of history has set that up, right? It's so counter to us, right? When you go, what what makes a good life? Hey, you're poor in spirit. You mourn and wait for true comfort. You hunger and thirst for a righteousness that you cannot provide of yourself. You're merciful. You're meek. You're a peacemaker. What kingdom is built that way? 
These run so counter across the grain of our natural bent in life that we have to intentionally and consistently reorient our lives by God's grace to see these realities as blessed. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for the rest of the sermon, right? He puts these out for us and he says, hey guys, this is the good life. This is where you'll find true fulfillment and wholeness and completeness and satisfaction. And then you go, man, that runs literally contrary to everything that I desire naturally in myself. How do I orient my life to see that as good? And Jesus goes, I'm glad you asked. He lays out for us what we've just walked through, six temptations that beset the human heart that we are to actively resist. And what we're gonna see in the weeks to come is he begins to then invite us into pursuits to go after, to actively put in our lives that will cultivate and, and grow these realities in us. That's where we find ourselves now. Would you turn the page? We're gonna skip that second one. Look at Roman numeral three. All that we're getting at there is that right at this hinge point between the temptations that we are to resist and the pursuits that we are to run after, Jesus puts this statement where he calls us to live a whole life. That, that sentence, be perfect as your father is perfect, is not a measuring stick that Jesus is standing up and saying, hey, if you want access to God, be perfect. That's not what it's saying at all. What he's saying is those who have turned and follow are following me, who have responded to my call by faith, live wholeheartedly oriented toward obedience to me. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. Be wholehearted in your pursuit of me. Don't let any sin or any uh, shortcoming or any place of darkness, let it be coddled in you. Don't let it be, don't be complacent toward it, Jesus would say. Live before me with whole, blameless, complete pursuit. That's what Jesus is getting at. Letter A under Roman numeral three. Matthew six then continues to follow the invitation of Jesus for his disciples to embody a greater or internal righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees had pursued. Like I said, the previous section that we just finished outlines six areas of temptation that are to be actively resisted by the followers of Jesus, those who have uh, united themselves to him by faith. The coming section is used to outline several means of grace that his disciples are to actively pursue in partnership with his grace. To understand this section, we first have to understand that God has ordained specific and particular means through which his people are to experience more of his grace. This doesn't need to rub us the wrong way, right? Like sometimes we don't know how to make sense of the free gift of God's grace in Christ Jesus. And then the fact that he's given us means to experience that grace in our lives. We are to pursue these activities with confidence before him. Meaning you aren't doing these things to earn his favor, 
That isn't what is at the heart of this. Jesus isn't saying, hey, do you want uh, to stand right before me? Practice all these things and maybe you will have enough merit to come into my presence. That isn't what he's saying at all. We are to live with confidence before the eyes of God based on the merit of Jesus Christ alone. And because of that, he invites us to position ourselves and pursue things to experience more of his grace in our lives. There is a reality that in Christ Jesus, you are, the position where you stand is as close to and united to God in Christ as it will ever be. That is real. And your experience of God's grace in your life is a a place that we can pursue things to experience more of it. Both of those things are true. This isn't a means to earn his favor, but a means to posture ourselves to receive more from him freely. Hey, I just want to use a couple examples because a lot of times we really do struggle with this. And there are examples all throughout your life that I think are helpful for us in understanding how can I pursue things to get more of God's grace when I already have the fullness of God's grace, right? It would be something like eating. Think about this. A lot of times I think Christians uh, view the means of grace uh, like a weird way that we would never view any other natural thing in our life, right? God's given us a means to be filled and nourished and all those things, right? We don't sit at the table and go, well, I've been given all of this food. It's free. Here it is. All this food is given to me. And if I pick up the fork and put it into my mouth and chew it and swallow it, that's, that's working. I don't want to work for that, right? Like we can't, our works are nothing before God, right? We would never do that. The same is true for us in the means that Jesus has laid out for us to experience more of his life, more of his presence, more of his grace. He's laid a table before us. He's welcomed us us in by no merit of our own, only because of the grace of God made known in Jesus Christ. Yet so many of us sit at the table and go, well, I don't want to work for it. And he goes, I'm not That's not working for it. I spread the table. I did it all. I'm giving it all to you freely, but I gave you faculties and means by which I want you to pick the food up and put it in your body and in communion with me, experience more. That's what God is inviting us to here. You didn't earn it at all. You can't earn it at all. Your works are like filthy rags. And now accepted in Christ Jesus, he says, come to the table and eat. And you go, how do I eat? And Jesus goes, here, I will show you how to eat. I will show you how to sit down at the table and to commune with me in my grace to experience more of my life and more of my truth. Look at letter D. Dallas Willard, I think, rightly says it this way. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning, right? Grace doesn't mean that all of a sudden 
you now don't exert any effort in pursuing the things of God. Grace means that the faculties that he has given you, your mind, your emotions, your will, they are empowered to pursue him. That's what grace is. It's not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. So how are we to do this? Look at Roman numeral four. In this section, Jesus now invites us to these practices and he's gonna do two things. He's gonna reorient how you pursue these means, meaning you're to do them before the eyes of God. And he is going to reorient why you do these means. You do them for a true and lasting reward. Jesus is going to reorient all of our pursuits around how are we to go after them in the secret before the eyes of God alone. And why should we do these things? Because there is a true and lasting reward that our father who sees in secret will give to his children. In inviting his disciples to walk in a manner that is whole before God, I think it's important to note that Jesus does not tell them to stop pursuing righteous practices. He reorients how they're to walk out these practices before his eyes. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus doesn't go, hey guys, don't worry. I've provided everything, so now you don't have to do anything. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, now it's just a clean slate for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter what you do with your time, your energy, your money. He does not say that. He says, you couldn't pay the debt that you had trust me for that. You couldn't make yourself come to life. Trust me for that. Now that you have been, still pursue things, just do it differently. Whereas you would have done it before for the accolades and the the acknowledgement and the status that it provided you before people, do it before the eyes of God alone. Do it for the eyes of God In this statement, Jesus demonstrates the way his disciples are to orient our pursuits before God is in order to do them before his eyes alone. He warns us not to practice our righteousness before the eyes of men in order that we would be seen by them. So what we see in the verse that we heard read is a warning. Jesus warns us of the reality here and then the rest of the chapter, he's going to positively lay out what it looks like in our lives. Later, he'll tell us to not sound a trumpet when engaging in religious activities, meaning we don't draw attention to ourselves, our dedication, or our zeal. Rather, we're invited to live before God's eyes and his eyes alone. Look at the top of page three. Jesus here teaches that God sees into the secret places of our lives. If you've got your Bible out still, I want you to just let your eyes fall on this. Chapter six, verse four, verse six, and verse 17. It says it again and again. Your father who sees in secret. Your father who sees in secret. Your father who sees in secret. This is the thrust of the chapter. Whose eyes are you living for? Whose eyes? Whose approval? Whose Pleasure, do you orient your life around? 
Do you orient your life around what people see and what the eyes of men see? Or do you live in such a way that the God who sees the things that happen when nobody else is watching, which is, I mean, newsflash, the majority of all of our lives, right? Whether or not we're in front of people, what happens behind our face even, right? What happens inside the secret intentions of the heart? God sees those things. And this invites us to see not only does he see them, he cares deeply about them. Understanding this truth radically reorients how we determine our value, our success, and our worth. So closely tied to this revelation that God has given through out the entirety of his word is this. God doesn't see like men see. I want this to sink into us this morning. God doesn't evaluate things the way that we do. You want proof of that? Again, just go back and read the Beatitudes. Nobody's coming up with that list. Nobody's coming up with that list, right? How many of us evaluate each other based on that list? Right? We still get caught up in such fleshly, earthly, man-pleasing ways of evaluating each other. And God says, that isn't how I evaluate you. I don't look at things the way people look at them. I don't evaluate them the way that people do. I want to invite you into a different way of evaluating yourself and others based on my word. This means that God doesn't de uh, define success worth, value, or importance with the same metrics that we do. I want you to just look at a couple scriptures here. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. This is when the prophet Samuel comes to anoint King David. He's just a boy. He doesn't even get invited to the party. There's this massive party for the prophet of the nation as he's coming into town. David doesn't even get an invitation to the dinner. The prophet shows up and goes, hey, firstborn son, tall, handsome, strapping young man with strength and energy. This has got to be the one that God desires. And God speaks to Samuel and gives us this key into his heart that if you, if this truth lays hold of you, it will change your life. I promise you, this will change your life. If this truth lays hold of you and works its way into how you see, into how you relate to God, to how you relate to others. What does God say to Samuel? Don't look at his appearance. Don't look at how tall he is. Don't look at how strong he is. Don't look at all the things that you love to look at to determine worth and value and success. Don't look at how rich he is. Don't look at what job he has. Don't look at his intelligence. Don't look at any of that. Why? Because I've actually rejected him. Because God does not see like men see. Men look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God doesn't see the way we do. Look at 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord are scanning to and fro throughout the whole earth. God's looking all across the earth. What's he looking for? 
a heart that is blameless. Hey, that's in the same world of what Jesus says, be perfect as the father is perfect. He's looking for a heart that is blameless toward him. So men are driven to evaluate success by outward appearances. This is fleshly, a fleshly way of defining and evaluating greatness and value that's not in accordance with God's heart. These texts invite us to understand that there are different ways of seeing, right? We can all see things differently. We can see things according to like positive externals, you could say. This is performance, accomplishments, skills, position, stature, training, wealth, education, fame, how networked we are. I mean, you could go on and on and on and on. What's your value system? Do we look at evaluating our externals in fleshly ways? And we all do this, right? We have things that we value and we go, oh, that person has it. That person has it and we strive to get it. To orient ourselves in accordance with positive externals keeps us in a constant rat race of trying to position ourselves before others in order to attain the things we see as valuable. This keeps our hearts bound up in ambition and striving. This is fundamental, right? You have earthly ways of evaluating things. You're going to run after them. And if that is the case, you're going to run after what the Bible would invite us to see like in the book of Ecclesiastes is like a vapor. If you get it, it's going to pass through your fingers and you're never, ever, ever going to be able to hold on to it. It's just going to pass away and you're going to run after it and run after it. And it's going to be the next thing, the next promotion, the next car, the next bigger reality. And you're going to get it and it's going to pass through your fingers and you're going to go, well, it's the next one. Maybe it's the next one. Maybe it's that relationship. Maybe it's being networked in these ways. Whatever it is in your life, you will strive toward it and have all of this unhealthy ambition trying to get it. But it will elude you, I promise. It will never, ever satisfy. This is what Jesus is warning of us here, right? Don't do things for the external approval, right? External approval is like a vapor. It doesn't exist. Hey, let me tell you something. External approval, the only good thing about external approval is dreaming about having it. It's the only good thing about it. When you get it, you realize it doesn't actually scratch the itch and it's not big enough because there's four more people in a room beyond that you're in that have what you deem would be better. And so you need theirs. And when you're standing there, you realize that most people actually don't give their approval like uh, indiscriminately, right? You got to fight to keep it. And they got way more criticisms than they have approval. That's reality. The only thing that is enjoyable about approval in this manner is dreaming about the day when you will taste it. And you run after it 
and you're on this hamster wheel that will never, ever, 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 ever stop. We give our lives over to positive externals. We also do negative externals. It's, this, it's the other side of the coin. The lack of gifting, spiritual failures, immaturity, lack of position, lack of honor, lack of power. To orient ourselves in accordance with negative externals keeps us in a constant spirit of judgment about others we deem less important than us. To evaluate others and ourselves with fleshly eyes in relation to the negative is going to either lead you to pride, meaning you relate negatively to others, you evaluate them that way so that you feel better about yourself, or to shame, right? Which is just the same feeling on two sides, depending on which side of the perceived value you're on. Pride and shame are the same thing. One side's pride, the other side's shame. So we can look at things these ways or we can wholesale exchange how we see and bring it up in line with how God sees an internal or heart reality. God evaluates not based on the externals, but on the intentions and the movements of the heart. The only way to experience freedom in our hearts and confidence before God is to be given this gift, the gift of evaluating in accordance with the ways that he sees. Throughout this section, Jesus is going to teach us that pursuing these seemingly small activities before God's eyes will be noticed by God and will be rewarded by God. Each of these pursuits is profoundly weak and seemingly insignificant. This is liberating though a liberating reality because it invites us to see that Jesus actually levels the playing field in how we pursue significance in the kingdom of God, regardless of our external situation. I have said this since the jump in the Sermon on the Mount. Every value system outside of the kingdom is profoundly exclusive, meaning you have to have some level of wealth, intelligence, status, birth, like whatever, to get inside. Jesus's is the only one that's broad enough to go, anyone, hey, anyone who will hear and do these things can be great in the eyes of God. This is unbelievable. It doesn't matter what you feel like you have or don't have, what room you're on the inside of or you're not what table you sit at or what table you're excluded from. It doesn't matter a lick. God says, hey, you want to know how I evaluate things? I look at the heart. I look at what your heart does when nobody's watching, when nobody sees, when nobody seems to care, when nobody around you may ever give you one drop of accolade for that thing. I see. And that's what I'm evaluating. Most people live all of our lives making very, 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 very little impact in the eyes of men. Hey, we just need to all like take hold of that, right? Like kill all of those big, huge ambitions. Most of us, our lot in the eyes of people 
is going to be profoundly insignificant. Profoundly. Hey, and even if you have like maybe a little bit more width, it's going to be forgotten. What, five years after you die? Ten years? I mean, literally. Like I want to just, I want to scream for us all and myself included. Hey, in the eyes of people, if we spend our lives chasing significance, our lives are going to be profoundly insignificant. Most of our lives are lived out when nobody's watching, when nobody sees, when nobody cares, when nobody's there to stand and blow a trumpet about us. That's where it matters. God evaluates our lives not based on external successes, the size or the scope, but the movements of the heart. This reorients our lives to understand that the most seemingly insignificant activities in the eyes of men can become eternally significant based on the posture and movements of our heart. Have you ever thought about that? Hey, when you're seeking to be faithful, when nobody's watching, when your eyes, the eyes of your heart, look to God and you're going, God, I want to be pleasing to you. I want to be pleasing to you here. And nobody's noticing it. Nobody cares. Nobody knows your name. Nobody knows anything about you. That has the power to be eternally significant. Forever. I'm going to prove it here in a minute. We'll get, to the, we'll get to the verse here in a second. Let me give you a couple examples. Hey, young people in the room, up here, I'll just talk to you guys for a second. <laughs> hey, I love you guys. I really do love you guys. Um, hey, how are you orienting your labors? How are you orienting your labors through your 20s? Right? What do you see as valuable? What are you giving your strength over to? Are you giving all of your time and energy and effort hoping to build bigger and better so that one day like you can establish yourself as all the things that you think are going to make your dreams come true? Or are you in secret places when nobody's watching, cultivating a depth in God. Like, there is nothing more significant that you could give your 20s to than having reality in, in God when nobody's looking. Which means, here's a couple things that are going to be really hard. Number one, you're going to have to say no to some of the, like, energy that's out there. Right? Like, we're going to hang out. We're going to always be together. Like, this takes actual time. Real time, real effort, real like pursuit before the face of God. And it's going to feel dry and hard. And you're going to go like, man, there's so many cool things happening outside there. But everybody's having fun without me. And I'm sitting here with my Bible open, seeking to cultivate life and depth before the eyes of God. And what's going on? Hey, let me tell you, there is nothing more significant you could give your 20s to you will have a reservoir that you will be able to draw from for decades to come. Who cares about a couple more volleyball games? 
<laughs> too close to home. <laughs> Somebody said that. I hear things. I'm not saying volleyball is bad. That's not what I'm saying. Build a life in God. Build a life in God when nobody's watching. Build a life of, in God that shuts your door and goes before the Father who is in secret, who sees in secret, and will reward you openly one day. Now that reward we'll talk about in the weeks to come. There's a ton of internal realities there. There's eternal realities there. But give your strength to cultivating that. If you could be convinced of that in these years, I promise you, you will not be ashamed. I promise you. I promise you. Hey, parents, parents in the room, especially parents of little kiddos. Hey, there are efforts when you are giving your life away, when nobody watches and nobody cares. And literally the person who you're giving your life away to is like pooping on you. Those moments, those moments in the economy of God can be wildly significant and powerful and eternally valuable before the face of God. I want to say this. God sees that. He sees that moment. He sees it. And because he sees it and his eyes are there, it is charged with the potential to have literally, literally, literally eternal significance. I'm not talking about like the kind of significance that will come because your blog got big or your podcast is, is big and invaluable. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about reaping the benefit of that eternally in the eyes of God. That is charged with potential for greatness. What would your life look like if you said, God, give me the ability to see that, to pour my life out there, to reorient my values, that values aren't coming by external accolades, right? I don't have to strive after those things. I don't have to run after them. If God gives them to you, steward them in the way that like is right and ordered before him, but don't spend your life imagining that those things are going to make you happy. Jesus gives us the ways that we will be happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. Jesus says, live these realities before my eyes and the God who sees that little secret place. When you're changing a diaper and you go, God, I want to be pleasing to you. Your eyes see me right here. God, would my heart be pleasing to you as I pour my life out for another? God will remember that. He notices and he will reward. Look at the top of page four.
I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about rewards here. But Jesus contrasts in line with this two rewards that we can run after through the choices of our lives. We can either run after receiving the reward from the eyes of people, affirmation, their reverence, their acceptance, their value, or we can receive our reward in the eyes of God the Father. Jesus declares that the Father who sees all that happens in secret will, and what we have done in secret will reward his followers. Look at again the same verses, 4, 6, 17. And your Father who sees in secret what will reward. Your Father who sees in secret will reward. Your Father who sees in secret will reward. In a similar manner, Paul declares that God will one day bring to light all of the small, hidden, and even imperceptible moments of the heart made before God and give commendation because of them. Look at this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says this, don't pronounce judgment before the time, meaning before Jesus comes and he's the one to evaluate. Why are we not supposed to evaluate? Why are we not supposed to judge? Because you don't judge the way God does. You don't see it all. You don't see what's going on inside here when we're talking with people, right? We don't know. We evaluate in all these other ways how big something is, how flashy it is, how much energy or momentum or excitement, how much money, how much seeming satisfaction is tied to that moment. And God says, I don't evaluate by, based on any of those things. Not one of those things impress me. Hey, do you think money impresses the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills? Do you think that status like impresses the God who spoke Genesis 1-1 light into being? Do you think he's gonna stand in the presence of somebody with huge success in the eyes of people and go, whoa, guys, hey, here, did you, Billy Graham, look at this guy. He's not impressed. He's not impressed by the size. He's impressed by the heart. He's looking for the movements of the heart. And this is why. So we don't judge. We don't pronounce judgment before time. We don't wait to like evaluate before then. Why? Because God is coming. God himself will judge. And he's going to bring to light things now hidden in darkness and discloses the purposes of the heart. And we all go gulp. Oh boy, here it comes. What's the next sentence? Then each one receives commendation from God. We're imagining we're about to get judged here, like severe judgment. And he says, Paul goes, hey, every single hidden movement of your heart towards God, every one of them done in secret, done in dark places when no one was looking, every cup of cold water, every time you cried out to me when no one saw, every time you went in your room, shut the door, you said no to this other thing and put yourself before me, I'm going to remember every single one of them. Now, let me just blow your minds with the exchange rate of God's economy here. We've got a great deal here. You know why? 
Psalm 103 tells us that if you repent of a sin, God forgets it forever. As far as the east is from the west. That's how far I've taken your transgressions away from you. So when we go, he's going to bring to light all the things done in darkness in the hidden places and go gulp. Hey, guess what? In Christ Jesus, he says, I've forgotten every one of them. I don't remember one of them. You probably remember them and you deal out of shame based on them. You probably still remember them. I don't remember one of them. Micah 7 says he casts them into the sea. He forgets them. God forgets things. The Bible invites us to see. In Christ, he forgets your sins and he remembers every single imperceptible, small intention of the heart when you longed to be pleasing to him, when nobody saw it and nobody like could validate it, nobody's blowing a trumpet, nobody's blowing you up anywhere. God goes, you might forget those. I'll remember every one of them. I will remember every single one of them. And I will bring them to light and there will be commendation. That's what the word of God says. That is the reality. Look at the bottom of the page here. I've got some things there talking about rewards. We'll probably spend some time in the weeks to come looking into them. If they, this concept bothers you, I'm sorry. But Jesus, it doesn't bother Jesus. Jesus talks about rewards a ton. And how to make sense of those things, we can spend some time maybe talking through. But I just want you to know this concept does not bother Jesus. This concept doesn't offend him or make him squeamish. He unapologetically teaches on the reality of rewards in the economy of heaven. We must set our hearts to be pleasing before the eyes of God. I desire, and I want our church to desire. This is who I want us to be. I want us to desire to receive every single thing that God has for us, both in this age and in the age to come. I don't want to leave one ounce of grace unexperienced that he would let me, right? As a people, I want to live holy, going, God, everything that you have, give it to us. Everything you have, give it to us. Everything you have for us now, give it to us. Everything you have for us then, we want it. Would you orient us around what you call good and right and valuable and whole and lasting and let us live wholeheartedly before your face and your face alone in pursuit of those things? God, would you give it to us? Amen. Would you all stand? I'm going to pray that over us as we respond this morning. Hey, I, wanna, I want us as a, as a family to go after this. And I've, I've had this sense this morning. I don't want, 
our fear of him not showing up or like my love of things to excuse me or talk me out of this. Like I want to go after everything God has and I want to pursue the means that God has ordained to position us to receive more. I want to run after those things together. And I don't want to talk myself out of it going, well, you know what? He's probably not going to show up. So I talk myself out of the fact that God longs to pour out his grace upon his people. He longs for that. And so let's just respond right now in the place of prayer. And then we'll come to the table and receive together. Father, would you come right now in our midst? And would you begin to stir in our hearts in the ways that are pleasing to you. God, we thank you right now that we have the free gift of righteousness in Christ Jesus. Lord, that we don't have to do anything to earn your favor. We don't have to do anything to uh, get your attention. You gave it to us freely in Christ. But God, we want our minds and our hearts and our desires. We want our lives to be vessels of the grace that you have given to us. We want to experience the reality that we stand before you united with Jesus. I want that experience. I want more of that experience. I want more of the cloudiness that, that, that stands between me and experiencing life in you to be removed. So God, would you move in this place? Would you enable us? Would you uh, give us more of yourself? Spirit, would you bring conviction in this moment? God, would you bring comfort in this moment? God, I ask that you would begin to uh, even move and reorient trajectories of our lives. God, places where we've evaluated based on fleshly and earthly ways, would you bring conviction and cause us to repent before you? God, we lay down ways of evaluating ourselves and others that are not in accordance with your, your purposes. God, and would you give us your ways of seeing? Would you exchange for us fleshly, earthly ways for heavenly ways, spiritual ways? Spirit of God, would you do that by your grace alone? Right now we ask. We're going to respond through song this morning. And as we do every week, we're going to come to the table, receive 
communion together as a family. And as we do every week, servers, you can come forward now. As we do every week, we've got people in the room that would love to pray with you, pray for you. If there's places that are being stirred in your soul, we believe uh, one of God's primary gifts in the gathering of the saints is the ability to stand with one another and minister to one another empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so if, if the Lord's moving in your soul in a particular way, we've got people that would love to stand with you, pray with you, pray for you. We're gonna come to the table and receive this morning. This, this meal is open to all who call upon the name of Jesus, all who put their faith in him and him alone. The way we take communion at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We've got wine in the stoneware and juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle and in the balcony and a gluten-free station to my right over here, to your left. If you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we wanna ask that you not come and take this meal with us. This meal is for Christians, for those who do put their faith in Jesus. But stay in your seat. Uh, we, we're, we're really glad you're here. But we'd invite you to look to Jesus, uh, not, not feel the pressure to come and, and participate in a religious act or something like that. So I'm gonna pray for us. And those who are receiving this morning, come and... Uh, as we come, why don't, uh, I'm just going to say this. Uh, if you're in the room uh, and have kiddos in Redeemer Kids, would you go and, and grab them uh, and get them and then come back in and receive communion together? Let's, let's bless our, uh, our, our servers down there, our Redeemer Kids workers. Go and grab your kiddos and then come back up. And then we'll be here responding in those ways. We're going to sing. We'll take communion together. And then we'll... Uh, if you'd like prayer, we've got people in the sanctuary that would love to pray with and for you. So Father, meet with us as we come to the table this morning. Would you, um, would you bless our, our, uh, our hearts in this mo moment as we seek to respond to you? Would you minister in our midst? Would you activate your gifts in and among us? Would you give us strength to respond? And would you conform us more into your image and into your likeness? We ask in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.